Circle of Hell, and this is the ninth episode of the uh, Development Hell podcast. Uh, Ed, we've made it to number nine. We haven't gotten any panicked uh, emails or phone calls from our awesome sponsor, Engine Yard, so either they haven't listened to the podcast or they're cool with what we had to say. I'm pretty sure they haven't listened to it. So this week, uh, as usual, we have Chris Harchis on the one side, and on the other side of the uh, crappy Skype connection that I have up in Kanukistan is uh, Ed Finkler. Say hello to the internet, Ed. Hello, internet. And this week we have a special guest. It is Nathan Fritz. Say hi to everybody, Nathan. Aloha. Nice. Aloha. So Nathan is coming to us from the sunny Pacific Northwest. Whereabouts exactly are you again, Nathan? Kennewick, Washington. So... Mm-hmm. BFE. Have you ever seen a, a Sasquatch up there? Uh, I I'm not sure. Sometimes I wonder if it was a dream or if it really happened. Okay. I think if Nathan would let his hair grow, he'd look like Sasquatch. Oh yeah, maybe. Oh, yeah, kind of a hairy guy. I uh, I was really into like uh, Bigfoot when I was a kid. Like I used to read a lot of books about it, stuff like that. So that was always when that shit was going down was in the Pacific Northwest. Oh, yeah. Hey, and up in Canada, too. Well, that's part of the Pacific Northwest. Oh, yeah, you went there already, huh? <laughs> I didn't say Pacific Northwest United States. But we can say it's that way, too, if you want. We'll annex you. In, <laughs> uh, in Fallout lore, uh, the United States annexes Canada in 2060-something. Yeah, it's getting there. Yeah, we're getting there. Yeah. Both of you guys are dicks. We annex you for your wood. <laughs> and there's no wood quite like Canadian. No, no, there's That's not. Right. It's the friendly <laughs> it's the friendliest wood you can find. There you go. Oh. Right. All right, time to get this show on the road, Ed. So all right. uh Nathan, why don't you uh, tell all three of our listeners a little bit um, about yourself, and then I'll explain why I coerced you into coming onto the podcast. Okay, so uh, I'm Chief Architect at Andiette. Um I've had more jobs than I can count on fingers and toes, but I've been here at Andiette for uh, working on my third year now. So uh, what I do is I help uh, pick the tools and design the tools and design the software uh, that we produce for clients and produce for our own products. So that's basically what I do. Um, I'm a language agnostic. I uh, don't believe in any supreme language, but maybe one exists. I just well, it's going to be a yet. short podcast then. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we can argue about that later, I guess. So I'm uh, th- I'm the father of two been married for 11 years let's see what else is there well that's good for a start yeah i think li- i like driving slow cars really fast like uh well like a steamroller <laughs> not that slow oh okay right so the main reason why i asked nathan to join us on the show was that uh nathan is uh one of my uh adoring fans on twitter and when he saw me talking about... Wait, uh, so you brought him on here just so he'd like kiss your ass? Fuck yeah. You know okay. I mean? that's, that's why I'm here. Yeah, right. And so he, Nathan has been acting as um, a very generous unpaid consultant for my uh, travels through the Node world. So um, 
And much like Ed, he knows a lot about JavaScript. So I thought it would be interesting to uh, have Nathan on because he deals with a, um, with an area of uh, application architecture that I haven't had too much experience with uh, yet, but it seems inevitable that uh, as WebPy picks up more more steam, that's uh, Nathan doesn't know this, but that's my pet name for Web three three point one four one five nine because it just keeps fucking going on forever. Um, that uh, that we're moving towards the real time web. Everything is pointing towards people's expectations of web applications to be um, responsive in real time, and there's a collection of uh, tools and techniques and architectures that lend themselves really well towards um, uh, towards building real-time apps. So we're eventually going to get to that, but I'm going to start off. We have our usual little pirate pad up. And so some of the notes I have here is that, so as Nathan mentioned, he is the chief architect for um, And Yet. And um, I believe, is there only two episodes in existence of your little keeping it real-time? Yeah, yeah, we keep uh, talking. It's like from two years ago too. We keep yeah. talking about uh, bringing it back. Yeah, and uh, we we we're just gotta set up a set schedule, and I think we're gonna do audio only. That's a good idea because there's just way too much editing when it comes to video. We were doing because you know you record an episode and then you do two days of editing, and that's just not worth it. Yeah, because we do no editing on this podcast, so that works out really well. Not really. Right. I, I, had to, I got all screwed up last time. I had to do kind of a lot of editing last week. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. right, because in the middle of talking, the hotel Wi-Fi uh, uh, dropped my lease and said, you got to connect again, bro. Yeah, <laughs> and the record, like right before that, the recording just started like missing segments, like a 10-second segments of stuff. So I had to like chop out some stuff that actually was sort of interesting, which kind of bummed me out. But Don't you hate it when like you're listening to a podcast and they're like, hey, so we've been recording for the last half hour and lost all of that. So now we're right. starting over. And they they all sound like they're trying to rehash what they did. Yeah, they sucks. don't. You don't want to say it again. No, that that's my biggest fear with this stuff because we only are recording it like on my laptop, right? So if I just accidentally hit the wrong button, first it'll just screw everything up, and then secondly, there's going to be a time where we record a podcast and it just it it happens to everybody where it'll just not like it does it, it you know so I so, you know my cat walks on the computer and it deletes the file, or I just forget to hit record or some shit like that. So hopefully it won't happen with you, uh, and you have to do this hellhole again. But, um, yeah, that always happens. So, um, I, I I don't know, I forgot what we were talking about. So. Alright, so anyway, I was just going to talk some more, about, <laughs> some more about Nathan here. So, yeah, so he's the chief uh, architect astronaut for uh, And Yet. What? Um, yeah. uh, but it's the other stuff that Nathan does that is interesting. So um, big time booster and contributor of code for XMPP, which I believe most people would know as the technology behind Jabber. Is that fair to say, Nathan? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, they're interchangeable. It doesn't Gtalk use that. Yep. Okay. And so we have in our notes here and that you said this could also help form a discussion about why people hate XML so much. Um, because like I said, I, I used to work for a company called XML team. So I've got lots of love for XML and understand its use and, and can appreciate uh, when I look at it that I can, uh, uh, I can usually pretty quickly figure out what's going on. Um, and so this also, and you made some notes here too, that, it, you know, it, why people hate S, why people hate uh, SQL and why people should lighten up. So why don't we talk a bit about your thoughts on that whole 
whole scene. Well, I mean, when people talk about XMPP, the, the first complaint is usually, well, well, it's XML. And, and then they get into specifics, like it's, it's too verbose, it's hard to read, and, or all of those things. And all those things can be individually discounted, you know. It, it zips about the same as JSON does, so, so why complain there? We get some more functionality, you know, that the extensible part of XMPP is because it's XML and you get namespace goodies and stuff like that. So you can argue all day long, but the, what it really comes down to and what they're not finding words for, at least I theorize, is that um, they have no natural code representation of XML. So when you're working with XML, you've either got like something crappy like DOM or you've got like, you've got all these like, steps you have to go through to even get to you know the 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 data element that you're talking about right or 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 generating it to insert it there's no there's no native representation and that's why everybody loves json is because it's just like writing python javascript whatever right it's just it's just shorthand data structures yeah i'd agree with that i mean i'm a i i i guess i'm a fair advocate of of json you know, over XML for many things for that exact reason is because I, I feel like it's easier to deal with because it maps right. much more cleanly to a, a programming data structure. Right. And, and I would argue that's the same wa- reason why we see uh, this no SQL movement. Mm-hmm. It's because, you know, uh, uh, SQL and tables and relationships and all those things don't map very well don't aren't represented very well in code so it's the stretch for developers that m- maybe only have you know a tenuous grasp on what xml is or what sql is or or on or, programming or, in general right or, so they're just like well why can't i just why can't i just right right um and so there's this you know there's this wave of, and some of it's not unfounded. I mean, if it's a pain in the butt, it should be easier, right? And some of that's the tools we use, and and that's why we see the rise of ORMs. Um, and with ORMs, it alleviates the problem somewhat for SQL, right? And then you see better uh, XML representations, better XML objects in code, and that alleviates the problem somewhat. But I don't think I've, I don't think I've ever seen an XML ORM. That would be a kind of interesting thing to see. Sure, I mean for uh, Sleek XMPP, which is my Python library for uh, XMPP, uh, we were inspired by uh, Blather, which is a Ruby XMPP library, um, and they use stanza objects. And basically, with attribute accessors, you're generating and destroying XML. And then you map these things together, and so you can really easily um, traverse and edit and find things in the XML with native object structures. And I I have to agree with you, too. I think that um, the ability to natively manipulate these things uh, is a really big advantage. Right. I mean, and that's where a lot of the hate from JavaScript comes from is the DOM, right? Because the DOM is just a a crappy way to deal with SGML, right? Yes. It's painful. Yes, it is. I like, I was thinking about that while, you know, while we were discussing this and I was like, one of the things is I think because I started working with HTML first, 
before I really got into what I call real programming, although I think a lot of people would argue with me that PHP is real programming, but um, that was a little joke. Uh, the, uh, that, um, <laughs> I'm laughing on the inside. <laughs> uh, that, but so the, uh, that, you know, I, I worked with HTML first, so I'm more comfortable like building HTML as HTML. But I think you run into a lot of programmers that want to build it programmatically, you know, and it makes sense. That's sort of kind of what they're used to, and they don't want to screw around with, you know, a markup language. But I think so. I mean, that kind of makes sense. It's a, it's a hassle to, to translate it into a thing that into patterns that you're not used to, right? And to go back and forth between those. Right. They, well, they just want to stay in code, right? And right. a lot of it is that you have so many developers that only know one programming language mm-hmm. and, and they just want to stay there. They don't want to go anywhere and they don't want to have to have to know, have to grok something outside of their programming language. Ooh, breaking up the nerd word. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, if, if you're, you can quote, no XML and no SQL, right. But, but if you don't grok it, if you don't know it completely, if it's not second nature to you, you're not going to understand why the hell you're going to all the bother, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I dig you there. So, Nathan, what do you think some kind of non-intuitive uses of XMPP are for people to kind of give them a better understanding of what kind of problems it can solve? And if there are, there are some kind of, some kind of non-obvious problems that something like XMPP can help with? Well, I mean, really, it's it's a... It's just bidirectional streaming of data objects, right? So it's it's useful for uh, uh, synchronizing of any kind. Like uh, I helped a company uh, do municipal Wi-Fi with it. Basically, they have all these routers all over the city, uh, and they want to change a config or add somebody or whatever. And they also want to know if their router's up right or or who's on and whatever and xmpp provides uh presence and rosters and things like that as well so not only can you sync the config but you can see whether something is up right now or not or or what the status of things are um and let's see i've done anytime anytime you're uh just <clears throat> screaming data out and you don't want pollers right you want to you want to push data out um people can just listen to these XMPP messages and there's an XMPP library in, in practically every language. So it's really easy to just, you know, make a little wrapper on an XMPP lib for your API to listen to incoming events um, rather than, than polling. That's There's great. a lot of other examples. I could go on for a while if you like. Yeah. Well, this ain't the XMPP podcast. So we have, all right. <laughs> Um, like, so how does that, do you have to, I'm, I'm pretty ignorant of XMPP. Like I sort of know that it exists and I knew it was based on XML, but do you have, you have a, like a two servers and they just like open up a port and send shit at each other basically, or how's that work? Well, yeah, and they can, and you can, uh, so you can either be a server, uh, identity or you can be a user identity at a server. Mm-hmm. Um, and the server identity portion is uh, verified through certificates um, and other security mechanisms so that you have uh, trust 
on the identity that you're sending to and receiving from. Right. So that you can actually authorize based on that identity rather than uh, have to re-authenticate every identity that you talk to. I gotcha. Interesting. That sounds like some really cool shit, Nathan. It's fun. Yeah, I've been involved in various ways for a decade now, so it's good times. The old man of XMPP. <laughs> but I've shifted my views over the years. I used to think that, uh, you know, XMPP should be, you know, in everything. And I've, I've uh, recently, you know, sort of shifted away from that, where it's just too much overhead for the inside of your application to have to talk XMPP. Like, uh, for example, an internal job system. You know, the idea is sound, you know, you have workers and you'd like to know their presence and you'd like to just hand them work. And we can certainly do that over XMPP. Um, but it's it's more overhead than you need internally to, to be generating, parsing XML, to be going through this XMPP server from these workers that you have now, you know, now have this extra component involved um, and rather uncomplicated, uh, rather a complicated component. The idea is that in XMPP is that uh, clients are simple and servers do all the hard work. Um, so internally, I've shifted my views away from that and have been, you know, exploring AMQP and, and uh, you know, lighter messaging uh, setups uh, for internal process communication. Cool. So the next thing I have on the list of something that you've been working on uh, and we're going to talk about the real-time web stuff later, is that you are writing, uh, you're in the process of writing uh, a Redis scripting book. Now, my experiences with Redis have been all positive. I look at uh, Redis as a really awesome key value um, store that deals mostly with memory, in-memory stuff, but has some eventual consistency in the form of writing it out to disk. And it has some really cool um, add-on features, um, I forget what his actual real name is, but it's, I know him as Anti-Res on, um, on Twitter. Yeah, Salvador. Salvador. I'm sorry. I keep forgetting his name. Um, and uh, and so I do know that Res does some support, some scripting. So why don't you talk a bit a, a bit more about what, what drew you to the, the scripting part of Res? And I believe you're using what? Mostly Lua? Is that what you're using? Yeah, well, that's what the scripting is. So uh, Redis is great because it's uh, very simple. You can... You could spend an afternoon and read through the code. Uh, you've got uh, simple key values that are binary safe. And then you also have um, some objects like uh, hashes and sets, uh, sort uh, scoring-based sorting sets, um, and uh, lists, so uh, linked lists. So you have uh, these data structures that you're used to dealing with in your language of choice anyway. Uh, and my, the data might as well deal with those as well. Um, so what I've been working on uh, for the, you know, a year ago, I started working on this thing called Thunk, which was this idea that I see real-time websites as a series of feeds. You know, if you're looking at, you know, to give a lame example, uh, Facebook, you've got a feed of users that are online. You've got feeds of news. You've got feeds of, of uh, you know, various, your own settings even is a feed, right? If they change, your your reference changes. So um, if you could organize the data for an application into feeds, uh, the theory was that, you know, you could have really a data-driven website. Um, so 
I started working on that, um, and it it works really well for data driven websites where you just break everything out into feeds and then and then you essentially your server turns into just a, a feed manager subscription manager for each session, um, and that works well, but it uh, was difficult to work with, especially in uh, Node, because Node's asynchronous, and you're doing all of these. You have to do multiple t- key calls, it, it typically in a key store, to get anything done that's relational. And to, to make that atomic, uh, Redis does sort of a passive atomic, where you say, I would like this to be atomic, Here's a value. If it changes, then this action that I'm these actions that I'm about to do, I want you to invalidate. So it's this passive uh, thing where you try to be atomic, and then if it fails, it rewinds, and then you do it again. So you just have to, and, and it was complicated to work with. Uh, what Lua scripting brings is I can do all of these multi-key things on the server. Uh, I don't have to worry about any sort of asynchronous na- nature of what I'm doing. I'm just everything's atomic, everything's uh, simple, uh, you know, dry. Uh, where where I might have really complicated logic, uh, where I'm messing with all sorts of data sets on the server to do one thing, like say, uh, post a forum post. I may be editing objects related to that thread. I may be uh, really uh, changing objects related to my user, and you want all those things to be atomic. So what scripting does is I can write my whole function as a script. And so what Thunk has turned into is a script manager with the perspective of there being these higher-level objects that we've created. There's almost a class. Each script becomes a method in the class, and certain keys become the instance of that class. So uh, it really uh, shifts things so that um, when I actually make a change, I do an action to the database. I've actually created my own object type on the database. I've I've made a database specifically for my application at this point uh, because I have all of my own methods. I have uh, every instance of that thing has its own keys, and uh, I can really treat it as a high-level object. That sounds hard. <laughs> it actually ends up being really simple. And <laughs> because you just have, you just write it like you were writing, uh, you know, a, a classical, a class structure. Right. So you've got your, you just have to name your stuff, right? So Thunk is basically a way to uh, help you do that. Um, and also it, it handles subscriptions. So Redis has publish subscribe in it. So what you can do is when you change an object, let's say I create this form post, um, that can send out uh, to a pub sub channel for that topic. It can also send out a forum topic for my user. So is, people can uh, listen to these different channels or rather endpoints can listen to these different channels and give live updates on what's going on if they're interested. Hmm. Yeah, Lua, I mean, from what I've seen in Lua, it's really nice. I have a friend of mine who really um, swears by it and loves using it for all um, sorts of stuff. So it's uh, it, it's interesting that you've been able to kind of find something that bolts onto Redis that 
uh, maps a lot better to the problem you were trying to solve with Thunk. Right. Yeah, it, it, it was a lot less work. I was able to throw away most of the code. Now Thunk is a simple script manager, essentially. So what tools have you been using to write the book? So um, I tried a bunch of things for the book. Uh, and, you know, even I even played with what's the new iBook author that came out, you know. Uh, but I, I've I've been playing with all sorts of stuff, and I've never really been – the higher-level tools, I've never been happy with how they support uh, – you know, problems we have in the technical world with syntax highlighted code. Um, and for the lower level tools, it felt like I was wasting my time learning lower level tools. So what I've moved to is Markdown. Uh, and I use Vim for everything. So just Markdown in Vim. And I found a little preprocessor that allows me to include other files. So I run my preprocessor. It uh, it gathers all of my files based on includes. You see, you see that, Ed? Together. Other smart people are using Vim, too. See? I keep telling you. I'm just an idiot. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, how old are you, Ed? Uh, th- how old am I now? Uh, 36. Oh, well, you're old enough for Vim. Yeah, it's just I never used it. And he's got a beard. <laughs> right. So, I, uh, oh, I didn't get into being any way decent at programming until later uh after until after college yeah 35 uh well i still argue i'm not decent at it but um so in college i did let's see we did stuff in turbo pascal which has its own you know it's basically an ide but that was all dos uh but it was a it has ide like the editors built into it and stuff and then Mm -hmm. um then other stuff I did was all uh, it was GUI based. So like a, there was one class that was Visual Basic, and then other we did some stuff with, I guess with Unix. I don't know. What did I edit my shit in? I don't Probably even Nano. know. Nano. Or well, Pico but I think it was Pico then. I think I, oh, I was right. using Pico for stuff. Um, but I was terrible. I did, I was terrible at my CS classes in college. Um, so by the time I actually got kind of serious about it. Um, I was really coming out of doing HTML authoring. And so I was, you know, I think I, I think probably the first like halfway decent text editor I used was probably home site 3.2. Wow. There's a blast from the past. Yeah. That was a great app, man. (laughs) I find anything better for a long time. Uh, So, so, yeah, we're going to cut Ed short while you're about about his weak ass editors. So, um, (laughs) So are you self-publishing? Do you have a deal with somebody? Like, what's going on with that? Uh, I'm not really concerned with it at this point. Uh, I think what's going to happen is Andy Ed's going to publish it. They're going to they're gonna go into that. Maybe we'll use uh, what you used, LeanPub, right? Maybe we'll yeah, I use LeanPub for my try book, that. Yeah. Um, uh, but at this point, it's kind of turned into a, a work project. Oh, all right. Uh, I'm pretty invested here, so uh, so it might as well be. And, uh, so we, we may just publish it ourselves. We certainly, you know, can do a shopping cart and, and I'm not really concerned with rendering it. I've, I've rendered it into a million formats. So yeah, I don't know. No, I was just, I was just curious because you know, I've got, I've gone on at length about my experiences. I'm working with the lean pub folks. Um, and I found that, uh, 
just this automated system that they had set up where just I could crank out the markdown and then just go to a web page and through the miracle of Dropbox just say, create a book for me, please. And they would do it all for me. So I was just kind of curious. I mean, self-publishing, uh, like doing everything yourself, um, that's definitely a route to go down. Because, uh, I mean, really, it's not that hard to set up a shopping cart. And and right. it probably takes a couple of nights of hacking around to to get a tool chain in, uh, in place that will take your, your source files and crank out something that looks pretty good. So, um, yeah. uh, so what's your time frame for you? Just kind of, it's going to get done when it's get done. Do you have a particular uh, target in mind? Well, I want it to get done before, uh, the next keeping it real time conference for sure. Um, and you know, I, I originally wanted it to get done before, uh, release candidate one of Redis 2.6, which is where they're, uh, adding Lua scripting. So it's not it's not a stable feature yet, and uh, Antares today just posted that if he doesn't get any new bug reports in the next couple of days, that he's going to post RC one. So in some ways, I'm really close. Maybe I'm at the uh, maybe I'm at the I did the first ninety percent. Maybe I've just got the last ninety percent to do. Yeah, I saw your tweet there where you talked about how. Um how anti-res pulled, uh, grabbed the pull request of yours to tweak something to do with the Lewis script. Right. I added, uh, uh, Shaw, uh, checksums to scripting because what I wanted to do was, uh, was to Shaw passwords and then compare passwords right on the Redis side. So we've got this product called, uh, Anbang, anbang.com and it's a team collaboration tool. And, uh, so you can see what everybody's up to. It's not really a task manager. It has task management, but mostly it's a tool to show at a higher level what everyone's up to. And, and it has uh, chat, and the chat can be XMPP and back end or IRC and back end. It's a cool tool. But anyway, so what I wanted to do, we're working on a, a rewrite of it right now. Um, it's just, it was just barely happening. You're rewriting it already. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just, you know, just, it's just refactor all the time, right? So I, I, we're rewriting the back end with stuff that I've learned in, in doing the book and the scripting stuff because that's that's really cool. What we can do with this Lewis scripting stuff is since everything – we've just made this custom database that's specific for our application, and it has live updates where, the, where, where things bubble up live. Um, what we can do is the middle layer, the node layer, whatever's doing your, your, your web serving and your web socket serving – or your socket IO serving or your long polling or whatever APIs you have uh, is just a router at that point. It, the code is really simple for it. It just, it just, uh, just has a little wrapper, a thunk wrapper in the native language that you're using. And you run the scripts as if it were, you just use it as if it were a native object and then events bubble up all the way to the client side. Well, man, I've lost where I've gone. What was I talking about? <laughs> Welcome it, to the podcast. Yeah, this happens all the time. All right, yeah, you're telling how awesome your little and uh, bang thing is that you're rewriting constantly because you're all um, hipsters out on the West Coast. Okay, let's move on to the next topic. You know, and we're 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 learning things as we go. But uh, anyway, what we can do is we can have you know, say there's a library we like in Python or a library we like in PHP or a library we like in. Well, now you're lying. You're lying when you say about. Library you like in PHP? I know for a fact yeah, I've written lying. libraries in PHP, so I have to like them, right? Hey, I, so, went, I went to your company's website, and it lists like eight hundred different languages you guys work with. 
like, and it's got like Cobol <laughs> and Fortran <laughs> and shit. It does say it does say assembler on it, but P- <laughs> but I I noticed that PHP was conspicuously absent. I oh, did notice well. that. Yeah, yeah. It, well, let's let's just segue right now and into, into PHP. Then. Yes. Yeah. Whatever you're talking about wasn't important. Let's just talk about PHP. <laughs> that's that's right. Uh, so. Um, I used to do a lot of PHP. I, I used to work at uh, uh, Lovesack, you know, the uh, the beanbag company, right? It's not oh, beanbags. Bean yeah, it's oh. not a damn beanbag, though, because it's like shredded durafoam, right, with changeable covers. So I used to work for Lovesack, Sounds and exciting. I was like a, a, a programmer for a furniture company. And, uh, yeah. Anyway, this years and years ago, <laughs> ancient right, history. Right, but no. Right. We did a lot of PHP, and and uh, and you know, I was pretty much I knew a few languages, and I could I could get away with playing with the few languages. But it was early in my career, and I was doing uh, almost everything PHP, and and I really enjoyed it. And then um, I also was playing with uh, XMP PHP. Uh, well, no. No, so that's before it. I was handed during that time. I was handed class.jabber.php, which was the first PHP library for XMPP. Um, this is what this got to be two thousand two, two thousand three, and uh, that's back in the heyday of PHP. Yeah, yeah. So, so I was doing that stuff, and uh, and. And then I just kind of migrated away from PHP. I got really into Python um, and uh, just just stopped doing PHP. Well, I always felt guilty about just leaving class.jabber.php in the dust. And, you know, I saw all of these forks out there uh, that were just kind of like fork the whole thing, add one feature or fix one bug and call it something else entirely. Classic. And uh, so I was like, you know what? I will... I haven't done PHP in four years, but I'm going to do uh, XMP PHP. I'm going to write, I'm going to give you guys something because, you know, the PHP community doesn't have anything that doesn't suck for XMPP. So I wrote XMP PHP. I noticed um, a little pause there after the, it doesn't have anything that doesn't suck. I noticed a little pause there. But they, well, I mean, they didn't have any, any really good XMPP libs. Right. And this one that I was supposed to maintain and abandon years ago, you know, it was just kind of, I never, I didn't write the first one and I, you know, made a few bug fixes on it and abandoned it. Um, I always felt guilty about that. So I wrote this XMP PHP and I wrote it in the course of two evenings and just kind of let it sit there. And I was like, you know, somebody's going to pick this up and somebody will maintain it for me because I don't do any PHP. Right. Right. Um, but instead of maintenance requests, what I got was, Every day for the last six years, some kid from India will IM me and say, hey, I found your XMP PHP. This looks great. Can you teach me how to program? That's what it <laughs> right. boils down to, yeah. right? And this, this, the, uh, the Indian programming culture is very interesting. It's, 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 it's very different from... Uh, you know, this culture out West where, uh, where programmers have some respect over there. Programming is just something you do to make money because it's a job that's available and there's no real culture behind it. And 
if you're not a man, it, 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 the Peter principle is like highly accelerated over there. So if you're competent at all, you're pushed up to management. And so, and so they really, it just, it just makes for a bad programming culture, I guess. Um, but uh, they, I just, I just got harassed every day, uh, twice a day for, for, for six years. That's interesting. And, and it wasn't, it wasn't even bugs. It was just like, okay, here's, here's this. Now, how do I add an if statement to do this other thing? Right. And so, right. And so I'll, you I, like, I've run into that here and there. Um, I think not to the same extent that you're talking about. And, uh, it, probably i guess you just uh you know won the lottery by writing something that a lot of people wanted to do something with but um i'm curious you you mentioned you talk about the the indian programming culture have is that experience that you have is that 100 percent based on these like support requests you've gotten or have you, not 100 you have no, other I, mean, I, I, I i'm actually find it kind of interesting so i'm, I'm yeah, and, curious and, to hear and, you expound on I'm that trying to make, you know it's it has nothing to do with uh the race or even their you know their culture, uh, right. their, their, but but their programming culture, uh, I believe, is broken, and um, or 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 maybe we just have it better out here or wh- whatever. But right. uh, I've talked to uh, a few uh, uh, friends of mine from India that right. now work out here, and and that's just kind of me summarizing things that they've said, and I've probably said it terribly, and I've probably offended people, but. I'm kind of under the impression that that's what this show is about. Yes, absolutely. Oh, yes. Someone finally gets the concept. This is good. Right. Well, <laughs> so it, it reminds me a little bit. It's not 100% analogous, but I remember I was, I used to work at Purdue for about eight or nine years. And so I had a, a, like a couple student worker positions where I'd hire a student for a menial sum uh, to do some you know, to, to work for me, do usually I want them to do some basic programming stuff and things like that, you know, web programming kinds of things. And, um, you know, I, a uh, couple, uh, had some really good students come through, you know, who are really smart folks. And, um, you know, I think, I hope they got some good experience working with me. Probably not, but, um, they, uh, they did okay. Uh, and then, you know, you get some, some were better than others, you know, but it generally worked out okay. But I remember one guy who, he was just a guy I interviewed for this position where I, uh, I asked him, uh, well, so he was going to be graduating it pretty soon. Like he only maybe had like a year left. And so he, he had been studying in, uh, I think electrical computer engineering at Purdue uh, or something of that nature, and he said uh, he his intent was he wanted to get into system administration. And I was like, oh, okay. So, well, uh, you know what? I'm what kind of got you into that? Why why were you interested in that? Thinking that the people that I run into usually end up getting into this stuff because they actually find it interesting. So he said, well, uh, I, really, it seemed like not a super hard job. And you got paid pretty well, and you could take a lot of vacation time. (laughs) And that's sort of alien to me. Like, uh, I now, I'll freely admit that I I think that as as, uh, developers, we're really damn lucky. Like, if you talk about, like, in this economy and in this stuff, that if you know what you're doing, 
we Sky's have, the limit, baby. We, Sky's we, the limit. We have done extremely well. We're in a, in an industry that has had very has really not been impacted very much by da- the you know recent downturn in the economy. Uh, how many people you know that that we know could talk about like, hey, you like are excited about not having a job for a while, right? Because <laughs> they could just pick and choose whatever they want, right? You know, and right. that is exceedingly rare, right? That that just in general populace that that's that's really okay. But when we get to be like, oh, you know, yeah, I'll find something else. That's fine. I'll I'll figure it out. You know, um, but I I got into this, and I think most of the other people I know who I you know are colleagues of mine, friends, got into this because they enjoy doing it, and that's why right. I think you're really so lucky is because you get to do something you actually would probably do anyway. Because you enjoy doing it, and it it really scratches an itch that you would scratch even if you didn't get paid for it, right? right. Um, so that's really awesome, and that extremely lucky, right? That we get to do that. And so, if you run it, for me to run into somebody who that isn't the case at all, I'm like, why? Why are you even fucking doing this job? Like, why would you even want to do this? That if it's just like some shit that you were like, oh, I can figure it out. It seems like. A- an easy job. I'm like, oh, it's so weird to me. But but what you're describing to me kind of sounds like that, where it's like, well, it's a good job and it's good paying, and you know, but you don't necessarily have a passion for it, right? And they don't treat it with respect. It seems like maybe the the problem is is that it's not being treated with respect, and mm-hmm. and this could be you know old. This could be old news, and and maybe the culture shifted over there. Right. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. But uh, it's it's. You know, it scares me. Where you're going with this, it scares me. Because if if Gen Y is going to be just like programmers that don't care, yeah, right, right, that scares me. That guy Ed talked to is is an exception. No, I yeah, my impression is that this guy was just a douche. Uh, Most of the people uh, I've run into, general like younger uh, folks coming, like they they generally are, are interested in it. And so I, I don't necessarily have a concern for the, the, the future of our, uh, you know, our, our, uh, coding younglings, but, um, yeah, uh, it's, it, I would be very worried if there were more people like that because yeah, this, it was, it was horrible, it was a terrible interview, but, um, yeah, I, but that would be a very, very different culture and the, it, it's like that idea of, of, having a community that really values learning and sharing, right? Like that sort of shared learning process and showing what you've done and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that really values that. It's what's so cool about, uh, you know, being a web developer and particularly working in open source technologies. And uh, boy, that would suck to not really feel like I had that kind of a culture. Yeah, and and you know, there are other countries as well, uh, particularly countries where uh, loyalty is a huge part of their culture. Mm-hmm. Where you don't talk to engineers at other companies, or you don't talk to programmers at other companies, right? Right. You know that's you know, and they and they, they deal with some you know different uh, cultural problems that kind of produce the same results. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting you bring up culture stuff because I think that's a nice segue into another point I uh, got here where I was joking around with uh, Nathan before we started recording 
um, about programmers. And so <laughs> we have this whole thing that's happened. Uh, it keeps happening over and over again where we have a bunch of, uh, I'm trying to think of the correct phrase, fucking morons who think mm-hmm. that it is okay to be misogynist and exclusionary. And uh, I, I don't know quite what to make of it because it just, it, it keeps happening over and over again. And I think the sad truth is that a lot of people are, they don't, it's a cultural thing, just as much as the stuff you talked about before, the, the things that you've seen uh, and have been told about uh, programming culture in India, there's the, the rise of the programmer. The, uh, I think that's an, I think the, the programmer is uh, a result of programming being considered uh, interesting, challenging, and well-rewarding re- uh, well on the monetary side of things. So anytime there's lots of money kicking around, the douchebags always show up. So, um, so we have now the ugly programmer um, stereotype. You know, the guy who got the, the guys with the pop collars and the faux rock and the faux hawk and the <laughs> big aviator shades and the brags about how uh, they do code in between uh, push-ups and how after work they're going to go dead squat four hundred pounds at the gym. Well, at least these guys are obvious. Was, was yeah. I think maybe there's some subtler things going on that that's not so obvious like these programmers at least they're labeling themselves out in the open and we can easily identify what they're about uh you know maybe maybe the problem's more subtle than that underneath yeah i don't know see one thing is that i haven't actually run into a lot of people like that in real life like who have these stereotypical, you know, uh, programmer types. That was kind of news to me because I haven't run into a lot of people like that. It I mean, seems more like a Bay Area type thing. Maybe I don't it, know. Yeah. I've spent um, a lot of time in the Bay Area, Bay Area, and I haven't seen it very much. Like I, I've seen maybe a it's lot of isolated incident sort of thing. Maybe it's just I've seen a lot of dudes with uh, um, plaid button down shirts and thick rim glasses and messy hair. I see a lot of those dudes. Uh, sure. That stereotype actually plays out pretty well. So where uh, are all the programmers? Is that I, I think it. I think it's, many of them. I think it's made up. To be honest, I think it was an article, and it was that. I I I mean, look, I'm sure you have pockets of it. Like, who were those uh, d bags who uh, uh, who were in Boston who did that thing where uh, they're okay, having some they're, party they're, and it was like die hackathon thing. Yeah, yeah. They advertised, hey dudes, we're gonna have women handing out beer. So right. Right, yeah. and and what was worse is actually if you if you went back um like through their posterous stuff, like when they posted blogs about things and shit like that, they were way 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 worse. Like they were posting pictures of like top like topless women in you know on their you know blog posts and shit like this. Like it was just really tacky, right? And it was just like there was no sense of like like understanding that of what they were doing. It was just like, you know, so it was, it wasn't even a marketing thing. No, they're just fucking idiots. Like, and you know, so there's, there's definitely, there's like definitely more of that douchiness. And I, you see that kind of vibe more, I think amongst, um, uh, VCs and investor culture. I think I see more of that with like the guys who are like, you know, trying to get into, you know, accelerators and like how, you know, 
constantly asking questions about basically how do I, you know, how do I pitch right so that I can trick this guy into giving me money, um, you know, shit like that. Yeah, I definitely feel like I've seen more of it in that kind of culture, but I don't know. That's a, that's a money thing. You know, that's a money culture. That's a financial thing. So it's sort of not surprising you see more dickheads in that, it seems like. But I haven't seen it. You know, I haven't seen like this stuff as much in. I, I don't know. I think the I think the programmer is kind of it. I I don't think it's an actual trend. I think that I I I have at least in my anecdotal evidence, I don't have much of it. You know. I yeah. I haven't seen it in person. Um. So I yeah. I suspect it's isolated incidents, but it maybe we should keep our eye out op- open for something more subtle than that. I don't know. So, Ed, this is the point of our podcast where where we also have to say something nice about the sponsor again. So, do do we have oh, something yeah. to make fun of Engine Yard this week, or are see. we going to be straight up about it? Let me let me bring up. Let me see if they have anything new on their website. So, as you know, we are sponsored by Engine Yard, which we totally forgot to say at the beginning of this podcast. So, no, I said it. Did you? I wasn't listening. Yeah, he did it. He okay, did. I was not even. Gotta keep attention. the sponsors happy. Let's see here. Um. Uh, did you know that Toyota Kenya is a customer of Engine Yard? I did not know that. Well, now you do. Let's see. Who else? MTV. MTV. Very exciting. Um, uh, Badgeville. I've, I've never heard of that. Um, Bayer. Bayer Advanced. Um, the Aspirin Company. Um... Let's see here. I uh, mean, Bayer, that little pill that girls are supposed to keep between their knees so they don't get pregnant, that uh, that that company? That is the other thing that they do, yes. Right. Um, hey, hey, look at this. There's a new blog post that um, Engine Yard joins the Apache Cloud Stack project. Yeah, that's something I saw. So we have OpenStack, which is supposed to be like a, a way to like uh, run your own sort of EC2 type setup. Right. And now uh, it appears that the cloud stack thing is doing an end around uh, around everything that OpenStack's been working. I got to tell you something. The advantage of um, cloud services to me are that I don't have to run them. Sure. So I'm not sure why I want to make my own, but but please continue. I mean, it's I mean, like I guess some people uh, get hung up on on ownership of servers and ownership of data and stuff. So I could see. Yeah, no, actually I can see that. A good, I can see if you, especially if you've like bought a whole bunch of like really high end servers and yeah. now they're saying, Oh, we should move to the cloud so we can take advantage of blah, I think, blah, blah. And then, and then some dudes like, Oh, we have all these servers that we just bought, sir. So someone says, you know what? It'd be fucking awesome. If you could run our own private stuff. Right. On, on our own hardware. I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, areas where that makes sense especially if you have a, essentially you ha- your say a large organization that has to have an internal that has a, enough of a justification for having basically an internal platform to build on like that uh, a real good example is that they basically do stuff like that at purdue right so a large you know state university focused on research and they'll have like a campus-wide it team and then um you know, you've got a bunch of different schools and departments under those schools, and each one of them can act as a customer, you know, on their own to independently say, yeah, I want to take advantage of this service, right? So, and because it doesn't necessarily make sense that they can 
that it's a lot more complicated for them to just go in and say, oh, I'm just going to pay Amazon to do it. Because then there's stuff like, well, I'm a nonprofit, so are you going to charge me tax? And are you going to, you know, there's there's bunches of stuff that that goes into and, you know, like what's okay to, to put on that kind of a system and what's not okay to put on that kind of a system. Uh, if you're dealing with education, you've got FERPA regulations, you know, junk like that. So there's a bunch of stuff like that. So with these large organizations, it actually, I think, does make a lot of sense to to be able to build those kinds of platforms in-house. Sure. So engine, so engine yard uh, again. They're more like a platform as a service type thing. So a kind of a step up um, from doing all your shit yourself on Amazon. So uh, uh, you know, engine yard's thing is all about you have an idea, you need to get it up quickly. They provide you with what I call containers, so a whole bunch of containers that you can run your apps in. And engine yard also is the home of our awesome friends from Orchestra.io. Uh, and they're awesome, uh, nicely scalable PHP solution. So if you're thinking about doing your stuff as a, if you have an app, you have an idea, and you think of going the platform as a service uh, route, definitely check out Engine Yard. They were one of the uh, trailblazers for a platform as a service. And they will proudly accept Indian programmers, unlike... Uh, Unlike anything Nathan does. Anything Nathan is doing, yeah. Yeah, uh, I immediately regretted saying that. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's uh, it, I I don't mean to tease you about that. No but, regrets. Uh, I always yeah. look forward. Nathan never looks. You know. Back. You know what? I I was I, I originally didn't think it had anything to do with uh, the Indian programming culture. I thought it was PHP cultural problem. Right. Well, it probably is. But and and so I was talking to a friend of mine that grew up in india and right. uh, and he was saying oh no i think it's more of a, a a business cultural and programming cultural problem that's interesting so what you're saying is because you have an indian friend it's okay for you to you know yeah you know right black people love me right um, yes of course yeah. and white people you have white friends i have i have gay friends yeah right. so, so it's cool it's a, do they know so JavaScript? I, can't, I can't uh I, no no it, they use coffee script no, it's, it's just, yeah, I'm just relaying something else that somebody said. and, and uh, Well, but the, the short of it, uh, getting off of your, your racial overtones, is that, um, <laughs> <laughs> is though that, so you put a couple days work in and you got like a shit ton of support requests for it and basically no like, hey, I'll help you out with maintaining this, it sounds like. Right. And now I just point point uh, people to a, a different XMPP uh, uh, PHP solution. Well, I guess that's one way to do it. <laughs> that's right. Go bug this guy over here. It's like when you know the kid asks you, I want to do something. What did your mom say? Go ask your mom. So there you go. All right. So now we get to the meat of the podcast here. The thing that I really was interested in finding out is that we're going to move on and talk about the real-time web. So... I wrote down a couple of things here. So the first thing I think would be fair since Nathan is the uh, appointed by me expert on real-time web. So we're going to uh, look at this and say, so if you had to describe what the real-time web is to, to somebody, uh, and from a technical side too, because it, it's only highly technical people who bother listening to this podcast anyway. So why don't you explain to us uh, what the real-time web is? Well, what people assume it is, is, is that the, the page changes live and and that's part of it uh you know in, in getting a little bit more technical it's that uh you don't have to pull for data that is pushed well it's not always the case but but you know that's generally what real-time web is to get really 
specific and accurate about what real-time web is. Real-time web is taking data from disparate sources, from many sources, from, you know, in the social web, it's from lots of users and uh, from, you know, uh, in a dashboard application, it might be from lots of servers telling you their status or, or whatever. Real-time web is taking data from lots of places and curating it and putting it in front of a user. That's pretty basic. Yeah. So, so, so what, uh, so what are some, uh, I mean, clearly you do a lot of work yourself with real time stuff. What are some of the common, um, stacks of technology that you see that you find people using when they're building, um, real time web apps? Well, since you generally want to push the data to the client, um, what you tend to see is uh, less Apache-based stacks, less less uh, running the web server uh, separately. So generally what you see is uh, the HTTP server is actually part of the application itself. And you started to see that with Big in the Ruby community and even before that, the Perl community, where you just your application runs as an HTTP server. You run a bunch of copies. You put it behind Apache or behind Nginx or even behind HAProxy, right? And uh, that's that's a major difference that you see from uh, you know the the traditional LAMP stack is that uh, the application needs to be the HTTP server, or else it makes things a lot easier for the application to be the HTTP server. Yeah I, explain, then, I, yeah, I explained some of this to Ed when we were talking about this last time when we recorded this uh, when I was in lacrosse about um, the idea that uh, sort of a more modern stack these days is is you'll have a web server, uh, that's uh, and the web server's job is to serve up um, static content and then proxy requests over to some sort of application server. So, so in many ways, it sounds like you're saying that for real-time apps, the you know the app itself becomes the application server. Yeah, and that and that's uh, that's almost a requirement for push data. If you look at, uh, for example, uh, WebSockets implementations for PHP, you run it from PHP CLI, and it's its own HTTP service. That sounds really painful trying to do WebSockets in PHP. Well, uh, that's what I wonder. So I, I uh, you know, the last couple of days I've kind of done a little bit of research on it, and it looks like uh, a few people have done it, and it's a bit painful. Um, and I haven't seen a whole lot of, you know, big activity over there for it. Um, now, you also have uh, PHP bindings for something like LibEvent, right? Right. Maybe that would make things less painful. Uh, so instead of, and in what, you linked me right before the podcast to to 5.4, and it's got an embedded HTTP server. But it very specifically says this is for not for production. You just use for it for now. Testing. For now, it's not for production. But I right. think that you could you could look at that as uh, the, what's the correct word the 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 tip of the wedge. I don't know the exact, I'm failing to find a proper analogy, but that could be the foot, you know, get the foot in the door and start thinking about making that sort of PHP as an app server idea work a little bit better. Right. And, you know, I think a lot of developers, I know I did, I gagged at the idea of, you know, your, 
your HTTP server being part of your application, um, you know, it's kind of a scary idea, but, but that's, that's been the model now and, and it, it works well. So what makes node special for real time web beyond that is that, uh, the whole language is in a, an event loop, right? So, uh, the, everything's asynchronous by default. And because of that, you're able to deal with events as they come in, which is why, you know, to go back to Redis now, if, if something changes in the Redis database, you don't need this cluster environment of and rumoring between your processes. It's just the red, the database reports that a user has done something because you've got published subscribe channels on it. That can bubble up into the node process and pop right into the event loop and be handled. The same is true with the HTTP connections coming in. Those just pop into the event loop and are handled. Um, and, and Maybe uh, the PHP community is not the community, but the language itself is evolving that direction with both embedded HTTP service and uh, lib event bindings. So, would you say that it's pretty much impossible to build a real-time uh, web application without it being um, asynchronous at the heart of it? Because it seems to me that it seems to me that would be kind of it, it, that you you are really reacting to events. So if you don't have uh, an event-driven system at the core of it, that you're going to have a really hard time making stuff work. It's going to be more of a pain. I wouldn't say it's impossible, um, but you're going to be doing a lot more polling. You're going to be doing you know various tricks. You're going to be working around the fact that you're not event-driven. But that's not to say it's impossible. It's it's just going to be. Uh, less convenient in the in the least. So we have we have Node as probably the main, uh, the, probably the, the best known one of these sort of uh, asynchronous type things. I know from the Python world, from my dalliances into Python, that we've got um, uh, we've got Twisted yep. and we've got um, Tornado. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the Ruby side, I think we've got Event Machine. And yep. is it Goliath? Is another one that. I remember on another podcast, on the Changelog podcast, they spoke to the guy who was kind of the driving force behind Goliath. So, um, like, what are some other, because we're talking about Stacksix, so what are some of the other tools that you see people uh, using? So clearly they're using some sort of, um, they're using some sort of tool that will act as their application server, usually speaking over HTTP, HTTP, it's usually event-driven. So what are some of the other pieces that you're seeing uh, being commonly uh, used. Well, you've also uh, event, or rather, uh, message queues like uh, Zero MQ or even bigger AMQP servers, um, and basically some sort of message channel routing. Uh, as I said, Redis has pub- uh, published subscribe channels, and that's almost always a component in it. Something that will do message queuing and routing. So, Ed, what do you know about zero MQ? Nothing. So maybe I've read a little bit about zero MQ, and the thing that's always kind of made me wonder about zero MQ is I need somebody who's used it to explain to me 
a kind of a real world practical way that you would use zero MQ. So you think you can like give us a quick little, maybe like five minute overview of, of zero MQ and how it would fit in and how it's being used. Um, I've only played with it and seen how other people can use it, but I can give you some examples for what kinds of things, what, what things that kind of thing is, is useful for. Uh, right. And it boils down to interprocess communication and channels of interest. So um, if you're going to scale, you're, you're either going to uh, shard or you're going to, um, you're going to have some sort of HA system, right? Where, where you have, multiple processes talking to each other. Uh, zero MQ and, and other channel bindings are also useful for if you have things written in, um, in different languages and running on separate platforms. Um, so, so say you have, uh, you know, you want to do reporting out of QuickBooks or something, and that's got to run on a windows machine. Well, you can start popping, you know, things into zero MQ as they come in and you can have a worker popping them out, um, you know, in the language of your choice, say, you know, PHP on a, on a Nix server somewhere. Right. Um, and actually processing these invoices that are coming in. Um, so interprocess communication, job systems, and anything that involves multiple languages or multiple platforms. Yeah, that doesn't help me much, but uh, I think I'll eventually get it. <laughs> well, like what what I'm doing with Thunk is is I'm turning the problem on its head a little bit. Where when you change the data in the database, no matter where you change it from, no matter what language, what process, whatever, it the event bubbles out that says you created this thing or you edited this thing or or whatever you did. Your action goes to the the processes that are subscribed to that action. Now that makes sense. So mm-hmm. it's that much I understand. So what things like message queues do is is instead of taking that approach, when one process wants to say something to another process, it goes into a message queue and pops out. It's it's just like uh, uh, either you're doing multicast, which is where you're trying to broadcast out that this thing has happened, right? So people might use say. If, if they didn't have something like Thunk or Redis, they might say, okay, well, whenever I do this SQL entry, I'm also going to pop into 0MQ that I made a new user. And then all of the processes running your service are aware that there's this new user. Gotcha. I think I'm, I think I'm starting to understand this. Sounds like magic. Black, black magic. Well, in a lot of ways, it is magic, but it's, <laughs> sure. But it's but if you have a wand and you can direct the traffic to where you want to go, it's not so bad. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, and it's all about you know if if I just want to write a million different processes instead of a really tall stack, I can write a really wide stack with something like this. Like uh, in and bang, we could. Uh, there was a, the April Fool's joke here in the office. Okay, was that. We're we're all on this dev version of Anbang, and, and we're in the chat room, right? And on a on April second, actually, because April first was a Sunday, people started coming into the office, and and everyone in the chat room is saying like random, ridiculous quotes, right? And and what what uh, 
one of our devs had done is he put like this Arduino in the refrigerator. <laughs> okay. And anytime someone opened the fridge, uh, it would uh, have somebody random in the chat room say some random quote from a quote website. <laughs> um, and so, so that's interesting because this Arduino can, 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 you know, interact with all these other processes uh, because everything's, you know, database based. You change the data in the database. Well, it bubbles up, right? Um, the, the other direction would be say, um, say for whatever reason, we wanted to change the word uh, Christmas to Xmas everywhere. We could, we could intercept anytime we see the word Christmas in a task or in a chat or whatever, we could, we could uh, edit that and republish it back in as Xmas. And, and it wouldn't have to be written in the same language and it would bubble up to all the processes and everybody would see it live. So we can just, if we want to add functionality, we don't actually have to edit our code. We can just add processes. All right. So, so getting back to the real time web stack. So we have some sort of event driven application server. We have uh, message queues that allow processes to send information uh, back and forth to provide updates and things like that. So again, is that really just at its most at the at its most basic? Those are kind of the components you need for for a real time app. Yeah, yeah. You 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 know you're better off if you have a stack that has an event loop and you're and you probably want some way of of managing messages and and then on the client side, which we haven't talked about yet, you want a way of receiving those messages from maybe disparate sources or, or from several sources and dealing with them with in the client. So and for real time, sorry, go ahead. That's where you see the popularity of things like backbone, backbone JS. I'm sure you guys have, 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 have heard murmurs of this. Oh, yeah. um, and, and because basically the idea is that you have then you, you, one, one of our notes here on the pirate pad is like the death of MV, MVC, right? And, and that's ridiculous. We can all, we, we all know that's ridiculous, but what we see is that MVC has moved because we're doing custom databases and thing and messages that, that, that bubble out from all these different places and, and get to the client based on the client's interest and access the MVC model moves up to the client because in real time, it's all about information from many places. And so we don't actually have a model on the server, or at least we don't have a model at the lowest levels of the server because the data is coming in from different places. And so the model moves up to the client because the client's gathering all this info. It may get, data from the user typing in something. It may get data from a, a WebSocket connection. It could get data from polling some other thing. And it brings in this data and it puts it in something like Backbone. And now you have MVC. And in fact, I think the MVC model that you have there is closer to uh, I, the, the real MVC that was described like in the original paper. Um, because you've got 
the model actually updating UI and stuff like that. You know, the, the views are smarter and things like that. Whereas I think the traditional model that you saw of MVC on a, a, in a server-side application that was generating HTML was that the views were very, very dumb. Um, right. And you didn't have direct interaction between uh, view and model and vice versa. Right. If, you, if all your data is in the DOM, it becomes really hard to manage multiple sources of data. Right. So keeping this data in a model layer uh, is a lot more manageable. Yeah. So these days, I mean, really, is JavaScript your only choice for the client-side part of real-time um, web apps? Because it seems to me that it's JavaScript or, I don't know, you're pounding your head on a desk somewhere to figure out how to make it work without relying on JavaScript. All right. JavaScript's the only language that all browsers support embedded in, you know, for, for client-side execution. So, Yeah, so and you, you, you need that logic for, to, to do it. I mean, you just, otherwise it's a, it goes back to being a, a pretty dumb client. Uh, you know, it's just a, a real simple static presentation layer. I mean, there's little tiny little UI things you can do in CSS and stuff, but it's sure it's it, the logic is, is, is very minimal. So yeah, that, that's what made it possible to do, um, to put the, uh, to implement the, uh, the, UI logic actually in the UI, you know, program uh, was that you had to have that stuff in there, and and JavaScript's the only thing that's universally available. I mean, there's you see little things like I don't know what Dart is that a thing, and it's uh, a, yeah, it's 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 trying to be a thing, right? And you know, there's a, I don't know if IE still supports VB script like in newer versions or not, but that you know, mm-hmm. it's it's uh. Yeah, that. But yeah, I mean, that's re- that's really the only option you have for that. I mean, I guess the other the other way you look at it is that well, if you're you're talking about um, desktop browsers, really, when you're talking about that, because it's not you know, there's there's certainly a whole model when you go to other devices that um, you have uh, front ends written in other languages. I mean, you. You know, is an Objective C app in in on iOS or a Java app in uh, in Android sure. or things like that. So it's just another way of it's it's just another way of presenting that kind of thing. Yeah, and and, and those aren't but those aren't browsers, right? Those right, are, exactly. Those... So I'm just saying it's like you know, there's that. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. If you're talking about browsers, JavaScript's the only option, the only realistic option you have. I can sense Ed getting a little punchy, so I think we're almost at our uh, almost out of time here. So, Dad, I'm tired. So, the, so the other thing that I thought was interesting that I put into the pirate pad, whereas I wanted to get uh, get some thoughts on you know what you think is probably the biggest misconception about real time apps, and I think it's more in terms of um, how you have to put one, how how you, how you approach putting one together. Like, do you see any sort of um, anti patterns? Or, or assumptions that people are making when they're discussing the architecture and implementation of uh, real-time apps. I don't know. Maybe my head's just too far down, but like, I don't really see too much of that. What I do see is that people go ACK callbacks or ACK deferreds or, you know, whatever the, um, 
whatever your event loop uses to deal with uh, you know events coming in, um, it's it's really a different way of thinking, and people fight it. And and it's and it's really easy. To, it's it's really easy to discount it as a as uh, as necessary. Um, but those kinds of patterns, deferreds, callbacks, and I think uh, there's one more. I don't even remember what it's called. But uh, it promises is just another way of doing callbacks. But those kinds of things are actually necessary in an event loop, uh, and it looks like unnecessary nonsense when you first get into it and you just have to sort of trust that it isn't and, and really take the time to understand it. Yeah. You just got to power through that shit. I mean, I know from my own experiences, of course, having so many years of um, sequential programming is the only other way to really describe it. That um, trying to wrap the mind around uh, events, uh, callbacks, um, defers, yields, promises, whatever you want to call them. Um, it is very difficult because you're because I, I find my own experiences, and even with the stuff that you've helped me with, um, Nathan, is looking at it and saying, you know what, it's it's not as obvious to someone when they look at the code uh, what the flow of information through it's um, going to be. Because I mean, when you when you talk about doing when you talk about writing PHP code, server side dynamic scripting stuff. Um, Unless you've really fucked it up, it, it actually is pretty easy to, to kind of trace through um, what happens when you make a request and where all that stuff goes. And you can probably, uh, you probably only have to go a few layers deep, again, unless you've really messed things up. And I found that when I'm looking at the Node.js uh, Node code that I've written, and I look at it and I find, um, see, uh, this is probably a good analogy, that stuff is slowly bubbling up from from the yep. code uh, through the keyboard to my fingers into my brain. It's going the other way. Instead of me getting, getting ideas and stuff out of my brain through my fingers onto the keyboard and into code, it's coming back up the other way as I start to understand, oh, I, uh, oh, I understand now that I can just, all I have to do is pass that callback from place to place uh, where it's going to go. And then the whole sort of event thing takes care of triggering the callback at the appropriate uh, time. So, you know, Ed and, Joe, and Ed and I joke about black magic and code and stuff, but to, to a lot of programmers who are just like me with similar levels of experience of only kind of with sequential and, and doing basically not doing request driven uh, request loops for things and not event loops um, is that this is, it looks a lot like black magic and you're putting a lot of, you're putting a lot of trust into a, uh, programming paradigm that um that a lot of people probably aren't comfortable with yeah and and you know it's taken it's taken me a year to to get to where i am and i still i still you know have to have to get myself into that thinking and i think okay you know i've got this callback and i'm going to pass it to each thing that may or may not break execution path and come back later and it's an entirely different way of thinking, and it just takes time. So what, what are some good resources you think people should take a look at if they're interested in learning more about building real-time apps? <laughs> My book, which is coming out. Um, book, it, I'm looking forward to seeing that. I, yeah, I, and, and, I and I've been... book was relevant to your interests, so I could swap, uh, swap copies with you. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh I don't know. I'm not the resources sort. 
I, I, I just like to get my hands dirty, but you, you, for a JavaScript programmer specifically, uh, the Mozilla MDN, what, what is it called? Mozilla developer network right. is, is the best resource for JavaScript, uh, client side or server side. It is, it is just good. You know, you guys in the PHP world are very spoiled in terms of documentation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but MDN is great. Um, and for, uh, I don't know, it's just kind of this, uh, new, I think I'm sure there's Ruby resources for like event machine. Um, but I couldn't tell you any specifics. So maybe what you're saying is that probably the best way to approach this is, is understanding that there are some sort of basic blocks that you need uh, to basic blocks that you're going to have to put together to build a real time app and that you should investigate them. So that means, finding uh, something that can act as your application server that's event-driven, start looking at um, message queues, and then start looking at um, JavaScript client-side frameworks uh, and techniques. Definitely definitely look at Backbone and and Spine and the related, you know, those sorts of solutions. Awesome. So, Ed, anything else you want to talk about? No, I think I'm all vented out, bro. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, events are good bro yeah absolutely absolutely uh um, well, yeah well so anyway nathan thanks so much for coming on you are one smart motherfucker and yeah. i have learned a ton um tonight about real-time stuff and just for me it's been more like uh with my usual kind of uh way of finding about technology is is kind of looking at stuff and and digging a little bit deep and then maybe coming back out and looking and looking at something else and so i i, I kind of do mental maps of things in weird ways and so this has been very good for me to understand if I'm interested in, in understanding how to build a, a real-time web app about learning a bit about the fundamentals and about what components go into one. So this has been incredibly informative for me. Great. Well, I apl- apologize for my racist slurs. <laughs> uh, but, uh, Dude, we have said many, many worse things than that. Man. Far, far worse, yeah. Far, far worse. So... <laughs> So I think we're at the point where we're going to wrap it up. Once again, let's thank our uh, sponsor, Engine Yard, and their awesome uh, platform as a service offerings. And another shout out to our folks from uh, um, Orchestra.io uh, who are uh, flying the freak flag uh, proudly for uh, PHP platform as a service. So uh, this has been episode nine of the Development Hell podcast. Uh, you can find uh, me online. Uh, via Twitter as uh, Grumpy Programmer without the U. You can find Ed as Funkatron with the U. You can find the podcast itself as Dev underscore Hell on Twitter. And also do not forget to visit the website, uh, devhell.info. So thanks as always, and we will talk to all of you uh, next week. Howdy.